From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. This morning we speak with Kirk Johnson. He's the Chief Operating Officer at Evans and Sutherland, a longtime computer graphics and planetarium dome projection company based in Salt Lake City, wow, since 1968, about their groundbreaking history and the cutting-edge technologies that they continue to develop. Then we, can, then we keep the computer science conversation going with Mary Hall, a professor and the director of the Calhurt School of Computing at the University of Utah. She shares with us the history of the computer science program and the companies and technologies that came from it, like Pixar, Atari, and Adobe. So stay with us. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm Katie Mullally. Since 1968, way before most people had even heard of a computer, much less computer graphics or simulations, Salt Lake-based Evans and Sutherland has been a leader in computer graphics technology. In fact, Evans and Sutherland was the world's first computer graphics company, and over the past 55 years, they continue their development of cutting-edge and groundbreaking computer graphics technologies. Here to share with us their fascinating history and what Evans and Sutherland is developing now is Kirk Johnson. He is the Chief Operations Officer at COSM. Uh, Kirk, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Hi, Lynn and Katie. It's great to be with you this morning. Well, we're really happy to have you. And wow, Evans and Sutherland, I mean, it was a Silicon Valley startup before startup was even invented, that word, and it happened in Salt Lake City, not in Silicon Valley. Tell us a That's little right. a little more because I know you've been there if my math is right for like 32 years or something. Yep, it's actually going on 34, so I've been here a while. Um, as you mentioned, we're now a Cosm company. We were acquired by Cosm in April of 2020. Uh, Cosm is an experiential entertainment company uh, specializing in immersive dome technology and bringing live sports entertainment to our consumer audiences. And so we'll talk a little bit more about Cosm in a few minutes, but if if you'd like, I'll spend a little bit of time reviewing uh, our rich history at Evans and Sutherland that we're very proud of. That goes back, as you mentioned, 55 and even even longer, 55 years and even longer. Uh, Evans and Sutherland was started by two professors, Dr. David Evans and Dr. Ivan Sutherland. As you mentioned, they also started the computer science department at the University of Utah in the late 60s. Uh, prior to joining uh, uh, David Evans here in Salt Lake City, Ivan Sutherland was at MIT and was credited with creating the first graphical user interface called the Sketchpad. And so shortly after that, he came to Salt Lake, joined David Evans, started the computer science department, started Evans and Sutherland, uh, also credited with uh, one of the first VR headsets called the Sword of Damocles. And so we have a rich uh, history in computer graphics. David and Ivan were known as the pioneers in computer graphics technology. Uh, as you mentioned, the University of Utah uh, computer department is going to be on next, but we have a rich history. So there is a lot of early students and employees of Evans and Sutherland, including John Warnick from Adobe, Ed Catmull from Pixar, uh, Jim Clark from Netscape and later Silicon Graphics, and Nolan Bushnell from Atari. So that's just some of the few that came through both uh, the College of Engineering at the University of Utah and also early employees of Evans and Sutherland, and we're proud of that rich history. It's an incredible history that I think most people don't realize. Why do you think that is? You know, everyone thinks that, oh, it all started in 
you know, in the, in the Bay Area or something, and yet it really started here. You know, that's a great question. I think there has to be a lot of things that come together to make that happen. You know, a lot of passionate people uh, coming together to make something special happen. And I think that's what happened here and probably lots of uh, circumstances that led, led up to that. You know, Evans and Sutherland uh, later became the world's leaders in, in flight simulation. In the 80s and in the 90s and 2000s, about 80% of the world's airline pilots trained on simulators that use Evans and Sutherland real-time computer graphics. We developed some of the most sophisticated uh, graphics technology, chip technology. Much of that was later licensed to uh, technology companies of NVIDIA and AMD that many will be familiar with. If you flew on a commercial airline, there's a good chance that your pilot trained on a simulator that used Evans and Sutherland computer graphics at some time in their uh, flight simulation training. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Kirk Johnson. He's Chief Operations Officer at COSM, and we're talking about the fascinating history and what's coming up with Evans and Sutherland. Well, Kirk, you talked about the simulation stuff, and I remember years ago the, the hang gliding simulator. You'd lay in it, and you'd move it around, and we, you know, it was so fascinating at the time. Were you one of the first simulation companies to create something that someone could actually get in and physically be a part of? Yeah, so our, I mean, our pilots have always gotten into our, our flight simulators, right, in both commercial and military applications. But the, 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 the hang glider was actually a marketing, uh, originally created for marketing. It was done to bring people into our booth at SIGGRAPH. And so we used our Evans and Sullivan simulation technology to be able to put people and an actual hang gliding harness originally where they uh, fell over and they actually had control using a, a hang glider controls and they flew through the grand canyon and through what we believed was a futuristic uh, city of los angeles in the year 3030 <laughs> i kind of laugh at that now because back in the day we thought 3030 was a long ways off this was in the early 90s probably 92 93 94 time frame and 3030 seemed like a long way off and here we're you know six six years from 3030 almost and it's kind of fun to see what we thought 3030 might look like and we had several of those hang gliders installed around the world including new york city uh, london uh, we had one operation for over 15 years at the hong kong space museum in, in hong kong and so it was a fun uh, fun attraction well it's one of the things i talk about is how evans and sutherland was the first computer graphics company and how does that, what did that look like way back when versus what we consider computer graphics companies now? Because now I think of computer graphics, I think of, you know, video games and so much of the animation and 3D and, and you know, the Pixar, that kind, of, that kind of art. But what did computer graphics mean back in the 60s when you first started? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think they're fairly rudimentary graphics compared to what we know today, right? Uh, back when you could only draw lines and dots on a computer screen, uh, that became, you know, our, our, our specialty became real-time computer graphics for flight simulation. And so uh, we, we kind of hampered ourselves a little bit in the quality because now we had to, for flight simulation, update the image 60 frames per second or 60 times per second so that it had realistic uh, feedback for pilots. And so you can't uh, update the same quality of image at 60 times per second as you can with video that you see with Pixar and things today. And so our specialty was real-time computer graphics. And then other, another interesting story about our history is because of that development of calligraphic projectors and real-time computer graphics, we introduced the first digital planetarium system in the early 1980s called Digistar. 
and that utilized our flight simulation technology, our real-time computer graphics. Up until that time, planetarium systems used what we call optical star projectors or star balls. And so those star balls could rotate the stars and you could view them from Earth in two dimensions. But Digistar now enabled our customers to teach and instruct and demonstrate to their audience that the space is three-dimensional. We can now fly through the stars in three dimensions. We could interact with those stars. It was really one of the first video games where we could actually, or video engines, video game engines, where we could fly through the stars, immerse our audiences in space, and in that amazing content to help teach students and, and, and the audiences about the three-dimensionality of space. Mm. Well, just to give our listeners an idea of how long this has been going on at Evans and Sutherland, I've got the best trivia question out there because no one's going to get it right. When was the first head-mounted VR glasses? When when was that invented? And I know people would say like, oh, you know, 2002. <laughs> and 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 Kirk, you can give us the answer to that, right? Yeah, that was actually in the late 60s, early 70s. I don't know the exact year of that, actually. Sorry, I don't know that. But uh, yeah, that was one of the things that uh, David and Ivan created at, at the Computer Science Department of the University of Utah. And here at ENS, we have pictures of one of the first VR headsets. And, and frankly, the headset doesn't look that much different than it does today, although there's a big mainframe computer behind it driving right. the visuals. I think it was only about 225 pixels across. And so that's really rudimentary in what we'd see today. But but really leading edge and cutting edge technology. Absolutely. Well, the only reason I know exactly what year it was is because I'm looking at the Evans and Sutherland website now, and there's this fantastic timeline. So it was 1968, which is the year that the company was founded. And as we already have mentioned, Ivan Sutherland was working on, I mean, I think he came up with Sketchpad in the early 60s. And That's I'm good. kind of curious... Um, David Evans was studied at the U, if I'm not mistaken, at the University of Utah. But as you said, Ivan Sutherland was in, at MIT. What made Sutherland come out to Utah and join forces with David Evans? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know that I know the answer to all that. I mean, I think many people thought that it would make more sense for this to happen in Boston or somewhere. More, you know, many people would say more exciting. I'm a native Utah, so I'm not <laughs> sure I'd agree with them on that. Actually, I, I, I understand that David Evans' wife, um, I think her name was Joy, played a big part in that. She had a big family here, didn't want to really re relocate them back east. And so I think they are, were fundamental in con convincing uh, Ivan to come out to Salt Lake City and do their work here. And I think that was instrumental because of the, the, the University of Utah and how that all developed. And we're glad that it did. Well, speaking of the fascinating timeline on the Evans and Sutherland website, I was thrilled to see that Evans and Sutherland created the tactical bridge displays on Star Trek II. And I thought the only cool thing about Star Trek II was Khan, but now it's also what you guys created. And so I have to go back and look at that display. But you think about that display now versus what you guys are creating specifically around planetary dome technology. You talked a little bit about Digistar back in the 80s. How has that changed from when it began to what we see now? Yeah, that's right. So back in that day, you know, there were some pretty rudimentary computer graphics line drawings of NES hand in, in, in uh, future worlds and, and as you mentioned, the bridge and, and some of the Star Trek series and and star fields that we provided. Uh, but today, you know, now we're full dome computer graphics raster, full 8K, 12K, 16K resolution, uh, super high brightness contrast. What we've created here at COSM uh, is a full LED, high resolution, high brightness 
a dome display. And so uh, just a little bit more of our history that maybe is just leading up to the COSM timeframe. In 2006, we actually sold our uh, simulation division to a company by the name of Rockwell Collins. Uh, that group is still located here in Research Park at the old ENS campus across the parking lot from us. At that same time, we acquired a company by the name of Spitz Incorporated. Spitz uh, is located just outside of Philadelphia in Chadsport, Pennsylvania. And they're probably best known for their projection dome structures and architectural dome structures. So if you've been to a planetarium, an IMAX dome theater, you've probably been in one of our Spitz dome uh, projection domes. We also, if you've been to Soaring Over California uh, at, at, at one of the Disney parks, or if you've been to, uh, if some of the older listeners, maybe Back to the Future at Universal or Bart Simpson ride at Universal, or maybe at uh, Avatar Flight of Passage. Those use our, our dome technology from our subsidiary Spitz that we acquired in, 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 in 2006. At the same time, we sold our simulation group to Rockwell Collins. That enabled us to vertically integrate within this dome theater and planetarium market and really focus on domes and planetariums. When and that's been our, our focus for many years. Uh, we have about 700 planetarium systems around the world wow. that use our Digistar technology. It's now on version Digistar 7. That's in over 50 countries around the world. And we support and, 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 and install systems uh, at all those facilities on an annual basis. And, and that's a big part of our our B2B business. Well, and you also, you talked about the domes themselves, and I know that part of your business, specifically mm -hmm. when you picked up Spitz, is the actual architecture and construction of planetary domes. So it's more than just a sphere above your, or an inverted sphere above your head. What is it about a planetary dome that has to be very specific to what you guys do? Well, you're right. I mean, the beauty of, of us av having that Spitz technology is we can we can give the customer the whole entire system. We can design the dome, we can manufacture the dome, we install the dome. We now bring in our, our computing technology for our projection technology, uh, for our, 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 our engine, we call it Digistar, our new version, our CX engine that we've developed now at COSM. And so in April of 2020, uh, just to kind of continue this story, we were acquired by COSM. Uh, COSM acquired us basically to, to help us take the uh, technology that we've developed in our science and education for planetariums and science centers into new markets. And we're now focused in, in expanding into sports and entertainment, in fact, live sports and entertainment. We've developed here in Salt Lake City uh, in our what we call our experience center, which is an LED, so it's an LED dome. It's a section of a 20 meter sphere. It's uh, a full 180 degrees uh, horizontal resolution by 112 vertical uh, resolution or field of view. Um, it's about 66 feet across and about 50 feet tall, and it's a full 8K resolution LED display. And so our entire, my entire history and career here at ENS was, has been to basically make projection in dome theaters better. And we've gone through different types of projectors from CRTs to DLPs to laser projectors, always trying to improve the image quality. We knew that at some point, because of the challenges that we have in domes of cross balance, the light that reflects off the dome back to your eyes because it's a curved surface, also bounces around within the dome and washes out the colors and washes out the contrast. And so we knew at some point in the future, we'd need an LED or some other, some other emissive technology so we could emit the light rather than reflect the light. So now the LED dome panels can be black instead of white or gray. And therefore we have a much higher contrast, a much higher image quality. And so it's been fun to uh, develop that technology. Uh, 
Causum acquired us in April of 2020 because they saw what we were doing in the science education field. They were aware of this new LED technology and saw new markets for us in sports and entertainment. So we're expanding now into live sports and entertainment. Uh, we're bringing the best of the NBA, the best of football, soccer, UFC fights, whatever, to you courtside, pitch side, behind the, the glass at a hockey game and doing that live. Uh, we've announced uh, recently uh, two customer-facing venues, which is a new thing for us. Uh, one in Los Angeles at Hollywood Park. Those of you who are familiar with SoFi Stadium where the Rams and the Chargers play and hosted the Super Bowl a few years ago. Our first venue is adjacent to SoFi Stadium. And we're excited that that will be opening in summer of 2024 where, where our customers will be able to go and experience these live sports and entertainments just like you're, being, just like you're there. Mm. The second venue is opening uh, just outside of Dallas at the Colony and Grandscape and that will open in September of 2024. So we're bringing our exciting new LED dome technology with all of our experience in real-time computer graphics and video playback to a consumer audience at these uh, customer-facing venues, and that will be new to Evans & Sutherland and to Cosm for the first time. We're having a conversation with Kirk Johnson. He is a Utah native, a graduate of the University of Utah, and for 34 years of his career, which I'm supposing is just about all of his career, he has been with Evans & Sutherland. He's the chief operating officer. And Kirk, I, I have to say, this is, this is all very cool science. It's great stuff. And I know that our listeners right now are wondering and I know the answer to this is no, but there's so much buzz about the sphere in Las Vegas that opened and you 2 the band is doing its residency there for a handful of months. And I think the first show is in late September. Um, is this not in your uh, umbrella of kind of what you guys are doing or is, is it right along with that? And can you comment on the sphere? Sure. Um, we're very aware of the sphere. We're excited for the sphere. We think that it's, it's great for our industry. Um, it's a very different experience than what we're doing at Cosm. The sphere hosts 18,000 people um, and, and was primarily designed for live concert events. Um, you know, we're excited for, for what they've done and the attention they brought to the industry. The Cosm venues are going to be much smaller, much more intimate. So ours, our venues are going to be about 2,000 people where you can go and watch what we call the shared reality experience where you can go and and have uh watch a great live event uh, whether it be a soccer game a football game an nba basketball game a ufc event have the best of food and beverage brought to you into your seat side and court side and bring you bring you there and so it's it's a much different experience but we'll be rolling out these venues we've selected the, the site for venue three that will be announced in the next few weeks and and have selected and are working on sites four through ten and hope to unveil those in, in major cities around the country and around the world in the next in the coming years mm, okay that's great great clarification too but as you say something like the sphere kind of opens people's you know just minds to the possibilities out there and i've only seen it so far you know on youtube um and it's wow it's incredible so i i am wondering about how Evans and Sutherland looks at innovation overall. You know, what what is the philosophy? What is your personal philosophy as, you know, kind of a lifetimer at Evans and Sutherland? How do you look at innovation? Uh, you know, Evans and Sutherland and I think cause them come from an engineering background. And I think as engineers, we, we look to innovate. You know, sometimes I think over the years, 
you know, it's kind of like the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. And so we see cool things and we want to go do cool things. And so, uh, you know, I think it's interesting because sometimes in today's world, you have to weigh the economics of doing cool things versus just doing cool things to do cool things. But I think innovation is, is, is in our DNA. It's been there from the start, from the 60s, and uh, it continues today. We are the most innovative uh, graphics company in the world, and we continue to be so. Uh, what we're doing with our live streaming of 8K, uh, 60 frames per second live sports content to our domes is super innovative and super new. What we've been able to do with LED technology, we're making LED do, LEDs do things that they were not intended to do, and, and achieving a graphics capability and graphics quality that no one else has ever done. And that, that innovation and spirit of innovation continues, uh, and we're excited about that and, 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 and excited to continue on the legacy that our founders and that all the people that have worked at Evan Southern over the past uh, many years, 55 years, ha have started. Well, Kirk, I know your background is in engineering. You've got a number of engineers, computer scientists, probably mathematicians working with Evanston Sutherland and COSM. But something that's this visual and this creative there has to be other disciplines that are involved. Do you have artists or psychologists or some educators involved in what you're creating? No question, all of the above. We have artists, we have a group that we call our Cosm Media, our Cosm Studios and X Labs that are creating content for these domes because no matter how great the technology is, it really comes down to great content. Now we have some super exciting content with our live sports and entertainment, but we're also creating other uh, content that we can play when there's not sporting events that are, that are occurring. And so our Cosm Studios team is working with creators from around the world, uh, one of the, the, the shows that we've announced is, is an agreement with Cirque du Soleil to produce a show for our cause and venues. We're excited about that. We've got um, Nancy Baker Cahill, Chris Holmes, Ricardo Romanero, and, and creative immersive art and other content that we're creating with those groups. We're super excited to bring those both to our venues and to our B2B customers and enable them to really um, excite and entertain their guests and their customers as well as those in our cause and venue. Well, I'm looking on the COSM website at locations of, um, you know, specifically planetarium locations for their, their projection systems. And we've got, you know, the Naval Academy screen, Shanghai, Fort Worth. When does Utah get one? And will it be at the Hanson or at the Clark Planetarium? So actually, we have uh, many uh, Digistar projection domes in, in Utah. Uh, including the Clark Planetarium. We also have them at BYU, at UVU, at Snow College, at uh, Alpine School District installed a system a few years ago. And we're installing one uh, early uh, early 2000 or 2024 at Weber State. So these are our projection domes. They use our Digistar uh, software uh, that about 700 planetariums around the world, at the Adler Planetarium, the Griffith Observatory, Shanghai, uh, the, this Hamburg, Germany, Berlin, Germany, the sites you've mentioned. We're hopeful and excited to see our new CX LED display come to some of those uh, sites around around the, the state and the region. Uh, we hope the Clark Planetarium will soon be one. We're certainly talking to many, many, many of our local partners and B2B customers and hope to have one in, in the Salt Lake City and Utah area soon. Mm, that's great. Another thing on the COSM uh, webpage on the homes page is a, you know, you've talked a lot about uh, the digital, you know, immersive experience with sporting events. And we've talked about planetariums and things like that. But how about those music lovers out there in terms of um, there's a, a picture of a symphony playing and this 
this display in the dome that is just incredible. And I think it would just make such a big, you know, like classical music and symphonies and things like that. How many venues do that sort of thing? So all of our venues will have that capability. One of the beauties of our software is the ability to basically put up any content that you want quickly and easily. And so probably the the, 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 the images that you're looking at on our website uh, talks about Ricardo Romaniero. Yeah. And so what he did is he brought actually members of Utah Symphony into our dome here in Salt Lake. And they actually modulate um, the image on the dome in real time. We film that and capture it and display it on our dome. And so that's an exciting, immersive art content. It's an example of what we're doing with Ricardo, with Chris Holmes. We're doing a similar thing with, with uh, what do you call those? Kaleidoscopes, where he's uh -huh. actually making kaleidoscopes oh. and then filming the actual kaleidoscopes and putting that up on the dome and then putting that to some of the famous, famous music musicians that he's, he's uh, working with, uh, similarly with Nancy Baker Cahill. So we're excited about some of that alternative immersive art content. And they'll, that'll be coming to our Cosm venues in Los Angeles and Dallas and around the world as we continue to, to build out that market. Oh, that's great. Now, this may be kind of blasphemy, but will we ever see that technology at somewhere like a Bravenal Hall? <laughs> Certainly, we've had a lot of discussions about that, yes. And the, the, the uh, you know, the Eccles Center, the Bravenal Halls, we've certainly had uh, that type of discussion with some of our partners I expect that sometime down the road, we definitely will. Uh, we don't have anything right now that we're ready to announce, but yes, there's a lot of interesting, immersive music and art applications that I expect we'll see in the coming years. Excellent. Wow, what an education this has been to really learn a lot more about a Utah institution. I think it's important that all of our listeners know about this and Kirk Johnson, is the Chief Operating Officer at Evans & Sutherland slash COSM. I don't know if that's the right way to say that or, <laughs> or that, what. That we, works. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a COSM company. But that's a COSM great. company. Okay, very good. Kirk, thank you so much for joining us today on Cool Science Radio. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. What do Evans & Sutherland, Pixar, Netscape, Adobe, and WordPerfect have in common. They were all founded by faculty or alumni of the University of Utah School of Computing, previously known as the Computer Science Department. The School of Computing at the U has a long and fascinating history as one of the most prolific programs in the country. Here to tell us more about the School of Computing and its groundbreaking developments, research, and history is Mary Hall. Mary is a professor and the director of the Calhart School of Computing at the University of Utah. Mary is also a fellow of the Institute for Electrical and Electronics Engineers and a distinguished scientist with the Association for Computing Machinery. Whew. Mary, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Okay, Mary, before we delve into the history of the School of Computing and the many technologies that came from it, tell us about the school and why it's now called the School of Computing. It's actually called the Collard School of Computing. And so I'll, 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 I'll tell you a very brief history. We started out as a division of computer science and the electrical engineering department in 1964. Uh, we became a department 50 years ago, 1973, a standalone department. And then in the year 2000, um, a lot of things were changing in the computing field. It was getting much broader. We were had aspirations to grow and be much larger. 
And so we became a school of computing instead of a department of computer science to reflect these things, that, that computing was broader than computer science and also that we had aspirations to be big and now we're now we have 69 faculty. Last year we became the Collard School of Computing through a generous uh, donation from the Collard Foundation. And so the School of Computing, I think a lot of us think of computer science as a program where you just learn to where you learn to program computers to maybe do basic functions. But your School of Computing has a much broader scope. Tell us about some of the programs that you offer. Well, uh, first of all, we have a computer science degree, and that's our certainly our most popular uh, undergraduate degree. But we also have additional com uh, computing degrees, a data science degree, which was introduced in 2019, and a software development degree that just started in fall of 22. And both of them have over 100 majors already uh, in those programs. In our graduate program, you can either get a computer science degree or a computing degree. And the computing degree is intended to be more interdisciplinary and more focused on a particular application of computing. Okay, well, it's it's hard to keep it all straight, but you have you know many different programs from you know robotics and AI and data science, like you said. How many students overall, whether it's bachelor's, master's, PhD programs, or I also see you have a certificate program. How many total students in the Collard School of Computing? Well, if you count everybody, it's about 2,500 students. Wow. And yeah, one of the things that has been happening is we've been growing really, really fast. The demand for our degrees has been growing really fast. And right now, 8% of the undergrad students at the U are in one of our programs. So do you feel like you grow from demand or do you grow from the marketplace? In other words, how many companies are saying, hey, we need graduate students in AI or we need student, you know, students with a BS in robotics? I think it's all of the above. You know, it starts with the state of Utah that it really wants to grow the tech sector and is encouraging us to graduate more students. The companies say, please, please, please graduate more students. And then the students are aware of this, you know, not just locally, but also what's going on in the world at large. They're excited about the technologies that are being introduced. And so they come to us looking for degrees. So it's, a, it's, a, it's all of the above. And one of the things that we've been doing is trying to think about programs that will attract students. So we've introduced some of the new programs I mentioned and some others. And so that also helped to inspire people to want to get degrees with us. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Mary Hall, professor and the director of the Calhart School of Computing at the University of Utah. Well, Mary, in the intro, I mentioned Pixar, Netscape, Adobe as just a few of the amazing technologies that came out of the U what other ones did I miss? And what have been some of the biggest ones that your school can lay claim to? Well, I mean, we shouldn't we shouldn't gloss over Adobe and uh, Pixar because those are probably the two most prominent ones. And people use Adobe products every day in their day-to-day -day work. Pixar, of course, everybody loves uh, Pixar films. And so that those are John Warnock and, and uh, Ed Catmull are, that uh, founded those companies. 
There's another entrepreneurial graduate uh, who's had a lot of impact. His name is Jim Clark. And so he founded, he co-founded Netscape, which, you know, is a early web browser and Silicon Graphics, which developed computer workstations with, you know, top in computer graphics at the desktop. So those are two. And then there's a fun one, which is uh, Nolan Bushnell, who was just an undergraduate here. He didn't come out of our PhD program and he founded Otari. Uh, and so on campus, you can find an old Pong machine in uh, the games program. You know, they have one in, in honor of Nolan Bushnell. That's great. I remember walking through engineering department years ago when they were having an Atari festival. And I didn't play the games, but I just sat in there and absorbed all the sounds. It was fascinating and so fun. And that explains why there was an Atari yes. festival at, yes. at the U. <laughs> John Warnock is a, was a Park City resident. A lot of people knew him up here, very engaged in the community, and he recently passed. In addition to Adobe, what was his role in the U, and isn't there a building named after him? That's right. So first of all, he was a student here. Uh, he got, he's uh, came from, you know, grew up in Salt Lake City. He uh, got his bachelor's, master's, and PhD from here. His bachelor's degree was in math, but his MS and PhD were from our program. And he developed a technique here as a student, he developed a technique for rendering hidden surfaces or analyzing images so that you could figure out which surfaces were hidden. And he had that his early work as the cover of Scientific American in 1970. That was the work that he did here as a student. He continued working with his advisor, David Evans at Evans and Sutherland went to a couple of other places before he co-founded Adobe and, uh, you know, the rest is history. I feel like, Mary, that there are so many people locally who don't realize this contribution to the, that the University of Utah has made to the world of computing. And I'm wondering why that is. Do you have any clues about that? I mean, I did not know about Adobe until, I don't know, maybe like five years ago or something. And a lot of the other great things to have come out of the School of Computing. It's its really astonishing. Well, I guess we need to do a better job of communicating uh, our successes. One thing that's gonna help us is uh, this March, the IEEE that you mentioned earlier, one of our professional societies recognized Utah with an IEEE milestone award. And this is one of just a few hundred in the world for an organization that's over all of electrical engineering and computing, not just a computer science organization. So this uh, milestone was for contributions to computer graphics and visualization from uh, 1965 to 1973. And there's a big granite platform with a bronze, stat uh, bronze plaque on it now on our campus. So hopefully people will walk past that and and realize all the things that happen here in this building. Yeah, it's really notable. And I think we've learned more about that in the 10 years or so we've been doing this show, Cool Science Radio. And I'm wondering, Mary, if what the connection is between, you know, what you do at the School of Computing and the commercialization of and maybe work alongside the group that forms Silicon Slopes, for example. That's something that we're really trying to promote as we go forward. There are collaborations with 
partners in industry already. Uh, the university has a organization called the Pivot Center that helps us with commercialization of our research ideas. And it's something that everybody here right now would like to see more of that sort of transition of technology and, uh, you know, not just the not just the hiring of our students, but actually taking some of our ideas and, and building them collaboratively. Yeah, we did speak with the Pivot Center a couple of weeks ago, and it's really fascinating to learn all of the work that goes into commercialization of some of the ideas that are formed at the University of Utah. So really exciting. Some years ago, I know that your gaming program was top in the country and is gaming still within your overall program it isn't anymore so it came out of the school of computing it became an educational program we had faculty that we were sharing between the games program and the school of computing um, and just in this summer it became its own uh, standalone division there's a lot of technology in games. And so, you know, the computing provides that technology side of, of the equation. We do have a games emphasis in our undergraduate CS degree and about, I'd say about 20% of our students choose that emphasis. So those students want the CS, you know, the full CS experience, but they also are really excited about games. And so it's nice to be able to train those students and give them the opportunity to to do the things that they want to do here. And Mary, I was reading that the School of Computing is also affiliated with the Scientific Computing and Imaging Institute. Is that still a partnership? And what does that entail? Okay, so the Scientific Computing and Imaging Institute is an interdisciplinary research institute. So it goes beyond one program. People come from not just the College of Engineering, but also the College of Science, and they're working a lot with the medical school. Most of the faculty in the Scientific and Computing Imaging Institute are, their academic home is in the School of Computing. And so we have very blurred lines between, you know, whether they're ski faculty or, or not ski faculty. We all collaborate on uh, joint projects. One of the things we're working on together is a new $100 million investment that the university and partners are making in uh, responsible AI. And so uh, you're going to see a lot of exciting things coming out of that. It's just getting going right now. We always like to talk about the collaborations and the multidisciplinary groups that come together. And back to Lynn's question about the gaming program, I remember hearing about that a few years ago and thought, what a brilliant idea. And even though it's not housed in your department anymore, what other groups were involved with that? Because I'm envisioning art, history, computer science, maybe even music, some sort of acting. Who came together and whose idea was it to start that, we'll just call it gaming program? So the, the program was founded by Bob Kessler, who was former faculty member. He, he recently passed away, sadly, but he, it was his brainchild. And so that's why it started out of the School of Computing. And he made a partnership at that time with the film school. And so the idea was to, you know, have the technology and the art sides of things come together. And there were degree programs you where the, the film students and the computer science students were in the same class and interacting with each other and having this interdisciplinary experience. And I think now 
I know there's a faculty member from philosophy that's part of the games program. And, you know, even like the computer science faculty, you know, previously school of computing faculty are interested in narration and, you know, using AI to form narration. I mean, they're still living in this storytelling space. And, and you can imagine that the opportunities as it continues to grow will be to pull in all the other kinds of areas that you mentioned. It's really a fascinating world, Mary. You must love your job, huh? <laughs> well, it's very exciting. Definitely the technology is very exciting. Well, yes. And, you know, maybe this is not how 21st century universities are conducting themselves, but I remember back when I was in college, you know, people would say, oh, yeah, well, if you're at university, that's all just theory. You know, the real world is a completely different place. And yet, when you are running a department of computing, you have to be, I mean, look at AI, look at how much it changes every single day. So how do you strike that bridge between, you know, teaching students and yet teaching them something that two weeks ago, you know, what you were teaching <laughs> two weeks ago may be different and you have to teach them something new today? That's right. We are constantly having to update what we teach and particularly in the machine learning classes and the natural language processing classes, which is where all of the advances in AI have come from recently. And so we're constantly evaluating our curriculum and imagining how we need to update it. Um, but one of the things that makes that a lot easier is because we have a, a large faculty of people who are top in their fields, top in their areas. And so the research that we do feeds into how we teach those students. And we're always able to predict what the next thing's gonna be. Yeah, do you also have professors within your program that work in industry and therefore are be are able to, to really know what it takes today? I mean, we have people who, who have experience from industry and we have uh, one faculty member who has a split appointment and we have people in industry who come help us with our teaching in various ways uh, so that the students get that background from industry. You know, Then we also have uh, industry partners that come and advise us on our curriculum. Well, Mary, I know the School of Computing is coming upon its 50th anniversary and it started back in 1965. Was it one of the <laughs> first program, computer science programs in the country? Yeah, so our computer science undergrad degree was launched in 1964. And at that time, there were 11 computer science undergraduate programs in the country, and we were one of them. And we, you know, have always from day one had a commitment to providing a high quality undergraduate experience and uh, have some former faculty who were pioneers in creating the discipline of computer science education as a research area. I know two of the big things that really set the U apart were related to computer graphics. And one was the image of the teapot. And mm -hmm. then I also remember the wireframe head rotating and talking. Why were they so groundbreaking? So let, let's start with the teapot. We now have in our front office a signed teapot by the two, Martin Newell and Jim Bland, the two that popularized that. Um, the teapot is interesting because it has a curved surface that, so if you wanna put an image on that curved surface, then you have to think a lot about 
how you arrange the image. And so that's why it was such a, a great platform for doing a lot of computer graphics uh, demonstration. Um, so that's the teapot. The wireframe head, I mean, I think it's just part of the work, the very early work on computer animation that happened here at the U and the, you know, that there's a wireframe hand that is also very famous um, that was Ed Catmull's hand. And he did a hand animated, animated film and, you know, it's just like here in the seventies, he wanted to invent computer animation and was working on it here at the U and went on to, you know, spend 20 more years before he could actually create an animated film. And he just kept plugging away at it because that's what he learned as a student here. And Ed was from Pixar, right? Is he the one that founded Ed, Ed Pixar? Ed is the founder of Pixar, yes. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. Wow, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, I don't know when you went to college, but I was in college in the 80s. Even in the 80s, computer science felt very new, very, you know, kind of hit and miss. And maybe that was just the institution I went to. I did not, uh, I, I didn't study computer science, but at the time it seemed like this emerging field. That was in the eighties. It's really amazing to think that the University of Utah program started in the mid sixties. It's just phenomenal. What were the classes at that point? You know, it's interesting. They don't look that different from some of the core that we teach today. Of course, you know, all the technical details are very different, but the way of thinking about the layers of, of knowledge that you needed to have in computer science, they're not that different. Um, the faculty member, Bill Viavant, that founded the undergraduate program in 1964, he was part of a team that wrote an article in 1968 that defined like a the curriculum for computer science and so that's so we can look at that and it laid a foundation for what we teach today of course we teach a whole lot of things that no one had thought of yet at that time so the field got a lot broader and there are lots of things you know we didn't we weren't teaching mobile computing courses you know and things like that but a lot of the the underlying core, the programming languages, the operating systems, the data structures, the things that we teach uh, now were, were already there in the, in the field. How do you feel about the education surrounding various programming languages? Because it seems to me, well, both my kids are actually software developers and they kind of make it sound like it's no big deal. Like it's almost like learning a foreign language. The first one that you learn is really difficult, but every subsequent one is just, there's a system for learning it. It takes you a day or two, I don't know how long. What are your thoughts on that? Cause it seems like something that people kind of fixate on about, well, you know, which programming language do you know? Right, so programming languages are designed to simplify tasks, sometimes specialized tasks that you're trying to do. And so, you learn different languages that uh, allow you to perform those tasks. And like you can write, use a very general programming language, but you might have to write a whole lot more code using a general programming language. That's why it's useful to learn things that are solving a particular problem. And it is really the case that you learn some core concepts and then they're implemented in different ways in different programming languages, but it's just, a little change in syntax. It's not really a fundamental uh, new thing. And so 
people specialize and they end up working in a particular space and then they track the technology developments in that space and they learn whatever comes along. Um, that's sort of the typical path for a software developer. Mary, before we let you go, I just want to ask you one more question. Aside from this great award that you're getting, is there anything else happening at the department or new technologies that we should be paying attention to? Well, I mentioned the AI initiative um, mm -hmm. and there are some related to that is data science. Um, we have, we were one of the early places to uh, have, have a center for data science. Our, our faculty develop and operate some large test beds. Uh, cloud Lab, for example, allows researchers to build their own cloud computer. And Powder is a platform for open wireless networks, such as used in smart cities. And then going back to our roots, we have built a group in human-computer interaction here, or actually what they call themselves today is human-centered computing. And that's really looking at how people are using the technology and how the technology can be developed with their needs and their experiences in mind. So those are the kinds of areas that we're really excited about. So, you know, we talked about John Warnock being a student here, and you mentioned the building, he was the naming donor for the Warnock Engineering Building, which was, which was opened in 2008. But he's also been a really important friend to the School of Computing and to the state of Utah. Um, so former governor Mike Levitt credited John Warnock with advising him that if he wanted more technology companies in Utah, then the, the universities would have to produce more engineers. And so about 20 years ago, when Levitt was governor, he created something called the Engineering Initiative Program. And the idea is to if if more it's, there's a feedback loop if more uh, degrees are granted to engineering students then they give us more faculty slots and so that's how we've been able to build our program I mentioned we have 69 faculty in the School of Computing through the engineering initiative especially recently you know we've gotten a lot of positions because we've been growing so fast. And so John Warnock was in the middle of that. And that's that's why Utah is a big, you know, has one of the fastest growing tech sectors in the country now wow. um, because of that. There's always so many interesting things happening down in Salt Lake at the University of Utah. And the School of Computing is a big part of that. Well, Mary Hall, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. It's fun to have to watch what the school is creating from all the way back to, you know, Adobe and from the original computer graphics to what we're seeing come out now. So thank you again, Mary, for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Cool Science Radio. You can find all of our archive shows wherever you get your podcasts at KPCW Cool Science Radio or on our website, kpcw.org, under the Shows tab in Cool Science Radio.